vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Hey, I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. Welcome back to How To OT, where we're making research more consumable and accessible to OT practitioners. On today's episode, we hear from Dr. Carrie Morgan about seating and propulsion training for someone using a mobility device, the importance of exercise, and things practitioners can do in any setting to improve the health outcomes of people who use mobility devices. As always, I'm your host, Matt Brandenburg. Let's get to it. Uh, we are here at Paraquad Health and Wellness Center in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, and I'm with Dr. Carrie Morgan today. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks great. for asking. Yeah. It's Friday. I think we're both feeling good about yep. that. Yeah, happy Friday. <laughs> um, Carrie Morgan is a licensed occupational therapist, a PhD, an assistive technology professional, a board member, and a consultant at a number of companies, and an Olympic athlete. Which, honestly, we're making history on how to OT because we've never had an Olympian as a guest before. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for your time and yeah. for joining us today. Sure, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Is there anything else you'd like to say to introduce yourself? No, I think you did a good job. I think you summed it up. All right, thank you. So real quick, for our listeners to get to know you better, you've competed in the Olympics how many times? Yeah, so actually the Paralympics, yes. um, okay. three different times. So... Uh, Beijing in 2008, London in 2012, and Rio in 2016. Do you have a favorite place out of those three? Yeah, you know, um, so I am a wheelchair track athlete, so that's Mm -hmm. the event that I compete in. Um, And, you know, I'm probably, uh, Beijing was my first experience, so I'm probably pretty partial to that. Um, London, the facilities and the experience were just phenomenal. Um, so I, I have fond memories of that, but Rio, I competed the best. So depending upon how you look at it, I guess I would go with Rio just because I, um, definitely had my best times and my best performances there. There you go. That that is important. And you're also a a world champion, um, wheelchair track. I am. So I've competed in, um, three different world championships and I have nine world championship medals in different track events. Oh. That's that's amazing. Yeah. A very impressive resume. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, how did you discover your talent and passion for competing in, in these events? Yeah, so um, it actually took me a while in my life. So um, I grew up with a disability. Um, so I, had, yeah, my, I acquired a disability at the age of one. I contracted a virus transverse spinal myelitis. Um, it's kind of like getting a spinal cord injury, but um, rather than an accident or an injury, it was a um, virus that caused inflammation on my spinal cord. Um, and growing up, uh, the movement in adapted sports and um, disability in sport wasn't quite there yet. So I actually didn't find adapted sports until probably my mid-20s. Um, and then when I found it, it just opened up this whole new world to me. And it was the first time I've ever seen people with disabilities, not just do sports, but really be athletes competing at very top levels and being elite performers in their sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just motivated me and encouraged me that, hey, maybe I could do that too. So it actually took me a little minute, a bit to get there. But once I did, 
um, I was really focused on trying to um, really achieve that top level in sports. Uh, and and you did. Yeah, and <laughs> still trying to. But <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. What are you currently working towards? In, yeah, so in the I'm world? potentially hoping um, to compete in Tokyo. So that's next year. So the cool. Paralympic Games at uh, in Tokyo in 2020. Um, so we'll see. We'll see if my shoulders hold up, and we'll see if I can keep the training going with trying to balance work and everything else. But um, but but hopefully. I, I thought after Rio um, that I might be done. I took the year off after Rio. I was mm-hmm. um, burned out, I guess you would say, and just kind of had to reset. But then it, I missed it. It was just kind of this piece, and um, I, I, I wanted to see where my body was, and my body recovered from Rio, and so I feel like I have one more in me, so we'll see if everything comes together right. But potentially um, we'll try for Tokyo in 2020. Awesome. That's awesome. We'll, we'll definitely be following that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. Appreciate it. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned, you know, hopefully your shoulders uh, hold up. Um, as you know, the this is a research podcast, and our hope is to give practitioners an easily accessible way to listen to research. Yeah. Um, and hopefully apply it to their practice. And you've done extensive research on uh, manual wheelchair propulsion, yep. um, as well as community-based exercise. That's right. Um, yep. And I wanted to ask, uh, did kind of your competitive spirit and your competition in sports uh, inspire or drive you to research that, or was it kind of your research that piqued your interest in competing? Yeah, it might be a little bit of both. But I would definitely say my journey in life has mo- motivated me to, to uh, pick some of the topics that I focus on. So, for example... You know, I just explained that it took me a while in my life to find and meet, uh, find ways to meet my exercise and fitness goals. And so, you know, I grew up in this really supportive but very competitive family that was very active. And um, as a kid, I just didn't have ways to compete and, and, and have that outlet that I wanted to, or even just to exercise in the way that I wanted to. And it, it really took me a long time in my life. And so, really, some of my goals and my research is hopefully that we can get people on a healthy, trajectory faster after they have a disability or they're coming out of rehab or what supports or what interventions can we be doing to prevent injuries and then encourage people just to keep moving however they can keep moving so I think it's definitely motivated me and kind of brought some passion behind my work and you know I think vice versa too I think I learned things in my research that um, that gives me insights that also potentially feed back into um, other things in my life, like how I compete, and so, so it's I, I think right. it feeds upon each other. But that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. and they both kind of add to your expertise, and I imagine your ability to, you know, educate others and, and share your research and knowledge with others. Yeah, I think it definitely gives me a personal perspective and insight that I can build on. That's great. Um, I think first for the purpose of this interview, um, maybe let's focus a little bit more on uh on your. Uh, manual propulsion sure. uh, research. Sure. And you actually developed a new approach to teaching wheelchair skills and propulsion uh, to new mobility device users. So, what does your approach address that wasn't considered by previous ways of teaching? Yeah, and I'm not so sure it's new. I, you know, maybe it's new to manual uh, wheelchair research. I think it's just taking some research and bringing it to the manual wheelchair world, but there are clinical practice guidelines that are out there um, that explain to clinicians um, how uh, 
people in wheelchairs should be pushing their chair. And from the research that I've done, both from the qualitative perspective of asking therapists, some therapists know that these clinical practice guidelines exist, some don't. Um, but really the common theme was even for the therapists that did know the clinical practice guidelines existed, they had no idea how to teach them. And so um, the other thing through uh, our research here in the lab um, from a quantitative aspect is it appears that a lot of people using manual literature were not taught the clinical practice guidelines and that if we do educate them about the clinical practice guidelines, um, that that alone may not change their behavior. That they, it, it's not an intuitive motion. And so that there might actually need to be a practice component to it. So, you know, we're in different phases of it now, but we're trying to figure out um, better ways to get information to clinicians to guide them on how to better teach people coming out of rehab. Because, you know, sort of what motivated me here was that we were seeing people with spinal cord injury, um, injuries that were using manual wheelchairs or any, it wasn't even just spinal cord injury, but yeah. people that were having significant pain, you know, they were eight, nine, 10 years post-injury, significant pain in their upper extremities. It was mm -hmm. limiting what they were doing in everyday life yeah. and their, um, how they were pushing their wheelchair was causing a lot of stress. And so on their upper extremities, um, but to try to teach them a new way to push after they've been pushing that way for eight, nine, 10 years was extremely challenging. Yeah. And so then it became, well, how do we get to people sooner and how do we get them to do it the right way, right when they start learning? And that kind of brought us back to, hey, clinicians, give us feedback. And some of it is just um, uh, having an intervention or strategies for clinicians to be able to um, do the training within a workable environment, right? Like mm -hmm. there's not a lot of time, there's not a lot of space, there's yeah. not a lot of resources. So how do we kind of guide them with, hey, if you do uh, five minutes of practice at every session, you'll get enough repetitions where they will then potentially um, be able to carry that skill over into their life. Um, you know, so that's kind of where we're headed. We don't have the answer yet. It appears <laughs> that dependent upon somebody's level of injury, dependent upon how many years they've used their manual wheelchair, some people might need more practice or more repetitions than others. Um, you know, I, I think there's a whole cognitive um, element to this. Some people motor plan it and process it faster than others. And so if people aren't processing it, how do we cue them in more efficient ways to get them to do what we're trying to do? Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that we're, um, we have some different pilot interventions that we're trying to figure out some of that stuff a little bit more. But, you know, the take home message is we're just trying to get more information where we can give it to the clinicians. So hopefully they'll um, feel like they have supported information when they see somebody in a manual wheelchair to actually be able to intervene. I love that. Uh, um, I think that's great because clinical practice guidelines can only take you so far. Right. And, and like yeah. you mentioned, you know, they don't mean anything if you don't know how to teach them. Yep. Yeah. You don't know how to implement. Yeah, for sure. That's great. That's great. So it sounds like the book on biomechanics and manual wheelchair propulsion is currently being written, uh, yeah. not done. Well, <laughs> I guess it's in progress. In progress. Yeah. Nice. And so this is, you know, so I'm an occupational therapist. Mm -hmm. um, I went back for my PhD. So I worked for a while. I went back for my PhD and my PhD is in movement science. Movement awesome. science, I got a um, 
focus in biomechanics and physiology and some things that give me a better understanding of how people move. And I'm trying to apply that knowledge to people with disabilities. So, so um, you know, I think my OT education was just as important as my PhD education, but I think them coming together kind of helps give me a, a nice perspective on um, hopefully further researching this. So yeah, absolutely. And I guess with your education background and experience, um, what are some recommendations or tips that you'd give to practitioners working with someone who is using a mobility device? Yeah, so I get from a lot of practitioners, you know, well, it's not my role to teach this or, mm -hmm. you know, um, I'm seeing people in wheelchairs, but I'm not doing anything related to their wheelchair. And so I, I would just challenge people that if you're working with anybody in a wheelchair at all, uh, I think it's important to have insight how the wheelchair works, um, that there's pros and cons of how people are positioned in the wheelchair. And as clinicians, if we're working with anybody in a wheelchair, we should just have general understanding of that. And, you know, um, and even if you're not the one that's going to teach somebody potentially how to improve how they use their wheelchair, um, you should at least be able to identify that if there's an issue there. So potentially you could refer them to somebody else. Um, and I think a really good place to start is, is where we started this conversation is maybe getting familiar with the clinical practice guidelines that relate to manual wheelchair users, if you work with manual wheelchair users at all. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm sure there's plenty of therapists out there that, that are currently. Um, so kind of familiarizing themselves with those guidelines and with, with the actual device, because wheelchairs can look so different depending on on the person they can and mm -hmm. one size does not fit all and <laughs> i am not sure still to this day that there's a perfect way to seat anybody i think it's just mm -hmm. a matter of trying to seat somebody so that you have more positives than negatives so everybody's seating is going to look a little different but and there's probably a reason for it um and you know as people get their second third fourth wheelchair typically the fit of the wheelchair um, tends to get better but it's really important that if somebody's getting a new wheelchair that they are seeing qualified people that do this every day because there's a lot of factors that go into how somebody's wheelchair is set up. And and that's kind of when an OT maybe would refer to a, an assistive tech professional. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Yep. Um, are there maybe like some quick guidelines on what a practitioner could look for um, in manual wheelchair fit? Maybe something with uh, yeah, shoulder yeah. height or the so, way and, someone moves their arms. Yeah, and so then again, this gets tricky, but it, it, if you're purely looking at seating somebody to maximize their propulsion, mm -hmm. ideally what you want is their shoulder lined up. So if they drop their hands next to their wheels, mm -hmm. that their shoulder is directly above the midpoint or their center of their wheel, which is called the axle. Mm -hmm. um, and that they're able to touch the axle. So if they can't touch the axle because they're sitting up too high, yeah. they're not going to be able to get a really good push. And then if they're not, if their shoulder isn't aligned with the midpoint or the axle of the mm -hmm. wheel and it's behind, it's going to force some uh, not positive stresses um, on the upper extremity when you're trying yeah. to push. So. So, but again, you know, I'm telling you this purely from just looking at how to get people to propel better, mm -hmm. but sometimes you just can't see somebody like that. Sometimes yeah. if you seat them too low, they can't transfer into their bed. So you have to seat yeah. them a little bit higher. So now we're kind of giving a little bit on maximizing propulsion, but we're making them more functional in their everyday life. Yeah. Or for whatever reason, maybe um, they're not able 
um, to control their trunk or their balance in their chair. So we have to move the wheels back slightly for safety reasons. Yeah. Um, so, so again, there, there's no perfect world here, but if you're purely yeah. looking at propulsion, those are some of the things to look at. Uh, no, those are great practical guidelines. And of course, as OTs in all settings, have to remember to consider those person factors and environmental factors as well. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. That's great. So you actually recently studied the Microsoft Connect yep. um, and how accurate it is in assessing manual wheelchair, wheelchair propulsion. Yeah. Um, can you tell us how that study was set up? Yeah. So um, this is sort of a, another goal of ours in the lab is that um, you know, we want to do uh, practical interventions where we're learning things that we can educate clinicians. Um, but in order to do that, you have to have a really sound methodology as far as your measurement pre and post. And a lot of times what that means is that you're bringing somebody in a lab and you're using them uh, a video motion capture system, which is pretty high technology to look at the biomechanics and are we changing it pre and post. Yeah. And so some of the limitations to that is, um, you know, clinicians don't have access to things like you typically in most facilities video yeah. motion capture and, and that takes too long to process data and to get an answer and so mm -hmm. we're trying to look at different strategies of potentially getting a quick snapshot of what somebody's push looks like and then potentially giving the clinician feedback of yeah. oh hey um, this person's push you may want to work on this this or this to improve this push right and so we were trying to look at things of different ways to measure. So, so one thing that we tried was the Microsoft Connect, and we did get some pretty uh, positive results there of, of being able to look at somebody's push. Uh, but there was also a lot of challenges to it, too. And the right. thing with technology, right, is it's always changing. And so at this point, I bet you there's better technology than what we did I think that study was three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now sort of where we're going is potentially accelerometers and okay. having somebody wear an accelerometer, trying to see uh, using machine lear learning algorithms, um, see if we can tell what people's pushes when they leave the lab. So in their everyday life, how are they pushing? And then potentially to get uh, an output from 24 hours of this mm -hmm. is how the person pushed throughout the day and then it give a clinician an idea of okay this is what their push is in everyday life and this is how we need to change it because the other thing that appears to happen is people come in the laboratory setting and they're already triggered that they better push better mm -hmm. and so they might do it in the lab but I can tell you that most of the people doing it in the lab probably aren't doing it in everyday life yeah. so how do we get better measurements right to, mm -hmm. to look at people's push get usable data that we can use for research, but also maybe use for the user to, to understand what their push is, or maybe, you know, have a clinician report so the clinician can be guided. So yeah. I think technology is a great thing, but it's how do we use it um, to get better information to guide how we're working with people. Yeah, yeah that sounds amazing. And it sounds like um, that's going to be a, a direction moving forward uh, yeah. for practitioners working with uh, clients who use mobility devices and using that technology in their everyday life to give an accurate representation of how they're moving. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And I guess you touched on it a little bit, but uh, what other implications do you think uh, that kind of technology um, would have on a practitioner working with someone who, who uses a mobility device? Yeah, I think it's just all about information, right? And just mm -hmm. um, having tools to guide you to make sure you're doing evidence-based approaches and 
that you're doing the right thing for the person that you're working with. And so I think if technology can guide you to do that, right? Yeah. I think there's uh, lots of ways to do that with apps and maybe accelerometers and um, but you know, the, the key is right to have the research done first so we know what works. And yeah. then, um, so I think it's a process, but I, I definitely think, um, when used right technology can really help, uh, just guide the intervention process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very cool. Um, I think now we'll, uh, kind of shift gears a little bit. Uh, and I want to ask you a little bit more about your work, um, with community-based exercise programs. Yeah. Um, so you have a study right now that's called The Influence of a Community-Based Exercise Program on Fitness, Endurance, and Strength of Mobility Device Users. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I've been lucky. Um, I have a couple different grants. Um, one's from um, the Craig Nielsen Foundation that's focused on spinal cord injury. And one's actually a career development award, a, a K-12 award called, a, it falls under the umbrella, it's called the court. Um, and, and those two projects are specifically looking at once people with disabilities, and specifically in, in this case for I'm studying a spinal cord injury, um, how do we better support them to do physical activity and exercise? Mm -hmm. And so I, I have this real interest of, um, when people leave rehab, how do we help them transition um, easier and faster onto living healthy with a disability and hopefully prevent a lot of these secondary conditions or at least delay them yeah. <laughs> that commonly occur with people that use wheelchairs or people that have spinal cord injuries, um, but also just get them moving more. Um, uh, you know, I, I think um, in my life, at least, um, just keeping moving, I, I think, has kept, kept me physically healthy, but also mentally healthy. So I think there's something <laughs> yeah. to that. Um, I also think there's a lot of benefits socially um, with people with disabilities exercising and, mm -hmm. um, and coming together in a community-based setting. So there's a lot of research um, in this area, and some of it's focused on getting supports in place so people with disabilities can exercise at their home mm -hmm. or do it through telehealth. And I think which are all uh, really reasonable approaches because one of the major issues with people with disabilities is finances and transportation. And, and yeah. so I get that. My interest really, however, is I think there's benefits to bringing people out of their home, getting them in the community and getting them some, some supports to exercise um, properly so that they're not injuring themselves, to yeah. exercise in a way that they understand what equipment and what exercises are going to specifically help move them forward. Right. And then also just to be around others that understand disability um, and, and potentially have a social network. And so, so that's kind of my piece of the pie that I'm really interested in. And so I have a group where we're looking at where we just educate them only about there, there's exercise guidelines out there for people with spinal cord injury. Not a lot mm -hmm. of people know it. Um, they're different than the exercise guidelines out there for people without disabilities. Um, the duration's a little shorter. Um, but I think the hard thing that people uh, that are newly injured or, or people with spinal cord in injury in general have with exercise is understanding that they have to do it at a more intense level to actually see physical health benefits. And so what does moderate to vigorous exercise look like for somebody with a spinal cord injury and so yeah. that's what we're trying to get them to see of this is a level of exercise that you need to do 
Um, so that the title of the study that you read um, was a study we already completed and we tracked over 200 people with disabilities that came into a community-based setting. Mm -hmm. And the thing that changed was their strength measure. So everybody got stronger. Awesome. But their endurance didn't change. Their uh, body composition didn't change. So kind of those physical yeah. um, fitness, health, related goals didn't change okay. um, that we measured, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, so how do we move the needle on those a little bit more? And, and the thing that became very clear in the people that came into the community-based setting was that um, they were exercising for 40 minutes on the armorgometer. We mm -hmm. have no idea what intensity level that is. And it appears that there was a yeah. lot of social conversations happening. And so what does that 40 minutes on the bike look like? And so the, 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 the projects that I um, refer to, we're looking at, we're trying to control a little bit more for intensity. So okay. if we actually hold people to this moderate to vigorous intensity, can we actually also have um, some physical um, health impacts? And, yeah. you know, we've been doing it for 12 weeks and potentially maybe in this population, 12 weeks isn't long enough mm. to actually see um, a change. So, so yeah. I, I, it's pilot, it's exploratory, um, you know, I, I get comments about, you know, is this even feasible to get people with spinal cord injury to come in? And I can tell you that that's one thing we are learning is it is. <laughs> we have awesome. really good feasibility data that, um, uh, you know, people figure out their transportation if they need to, mm -hmm. um, if they're supported to exercise and have a place to do it, um, that, that they actually will do it. Um, yeah. We started with bringing in people three times a week um, just because of life and, and things that come up. It seems like two times a week is maybe more reasonable. Yeah. So how do we look in the future? Maybe we get them in here two times a week, but maybe they are doing one time a week on their own or at home. Or So, so what does it yeah. look like, right? And so again, um, exploratory, trying to learn. Um, but, but I think we're seeing some interesting things with hopefully the eventual goal of having great information for when people leave rehab of mm. how we educate them and then how we support them to exercise. Yeah. Wow. That, it sounds like awesome programming yeah. that you're seeing potential benefits of um, and still working towards improving as well. Yeah. And, uh, the, you know, uh, when you started the interview, you, you said we were located in the Paraquad Health and Wellness Center. So mm. um, I'm, I'm extremely lucky to have our research lab based within a community collaborator that we yeah. collaborate with. So we research things and then they implement it into their space or they'll mm -hmm. implement our interventions for us. So, so that collaboration and, and, and having access um, to a strong community partner like that is super important to our research. Yeah. Um, and that's awesome. That kind of, that leads perfectly into my next question for a practitioner who uh, wants to, uh, help clients get involved with a community-based exercise yeah. program or yeah. something like this, but maybe doesn't have access to a paraquad-type facility. Yeah. Um, what do you recommend to them in terms of seeking out a community partner or yeah. making recommendations to a client? Yeah, so, so great question. There is a really awesome resource out there that, for whatever reason, just a lot of people don't know about, and I'm probably going to say it wrong, but it's NICPAD. NCHPAD, National Council on Health, Physical Activity and Disability. It's close. Um, but <laughs> that, that sounded spot on to me. Yeah. So they are, um, they have funding through uh, several 
sources, um, CDC being one of them. Um, but uh, so it's a website, but it's more than a website. But if you go to the website, um, there's links on the website for if you're a, a healthcare practitioner and you're looking for information for clients with disabilities that want to exercise, or if you're actually a person with a disability and you want to learn information about exercising. Um, and you, they have technical assistance. You can also call them and have one-on-one -on -one sessions with them. But basically what this site is, is you can, it has so many things on it, but you can look for what area you're in geographically and it will list places that they know um, offer services to people with disabilities. Um, they have videos online that there's a 14-week program, for example. So if you have a disability, you log in this information about um, you know, uh, what your disability is and, and how you're able to move. And then it brings up videos for you of exercises that you could be doing and it shows you how to do them. So somebody really doesn't know how to start. Um, so, you know, it, that's a perfect place for a healthcare professional and OT to open the video and say, Hey, these are some exercises you could be doing at your home. And if you can't remember how to do them, you can pull up these videos. Um, so, so that's a really great start if you, if you don't know yeah. where to start. The other mm -hmm. thing is it has um, a whole place, uh, a separate place on the site about research articles, about evidence-based approaches for exercise for people with disabilities. Yeah. Um, so uh, so I, I would recommend that that's one place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like a great place to start to find those community partners, but also find additional research and yep. make sure uh, everything they're doing is evidence-based. Yep. Um, very cool. One thing I wanted to ask you more specifically is if you could share what some of the physical and social factors that impact someone using a mobility device are. Yep, so uh, physical and social factors for just participating in everyday life or physical and social factors for participating in exercise or... Yeah, I, I would say both. Um, I know most of your research is focused on exercise. Yeah, yeah. Um, but probably both to help a, a practitioner kind of understand better some of those factors to consider yeah. uh, when working with a client yeah. uh, using a, a device. So let me start in related to exercise and then I, mm -hmm. I can broaden it if we... Uh, well, let's see where we end. But um, so, um, so a lot of the reasons that we're told, and we've done a lot of qualitative data of why people with disabilities don't exercise, mm -hmm. there's there some that are in the, the sort of the physical aspects of the environment, and there's some that are, are real social related. So yeah. some some that are more on the physical side is um, they can't get it around. So transportation issues, they can't afford it. Um, finances. Um, they go somewhere um, like, a, like a regular gym and feel like mm -hmm. the equipment isn't there to support them. So having access to accessible equipment that they can actually use yeah. um, or even going to a place, um, you know, a, a typical gym and, and being able to use the bathroom or the showers, even, even get to the equipment or having staff in there trained to understand um, that people with disabilities may have different needs. And so, so that's a lot of the environment stuff that keeps people um, with disabilities um, from exercising. Mm -hmm. Then there is a social component. It's, um, you know, is there support at, at home for that person to be able to exercise? Um, we get a lot of comments from people with disabilities that they actually don't want to go exercise in your typical gym because um, of stigma. They feel that people yeah. are staring at them. There's nobody else that looks like them there. 
uh, that, you know, uh, they, they may know what they're doing, but, but other people interpret it as they're struggling and there's, there, there's sort of this stigma related to it. And so, yeah. so there, there's definitely sort of the social aspect that may potentially keep people from doing it as well. And I think that example, I mean, really translates to other examples in life of white people with disabilities may participate more, may not participate more, dependent upon, you know, if their environment of where they're going is accessible, if they feel like um, they're getting social acceptance or not. Um, so I think a lot of those factors relate. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for kind of painting a picture of, of what those look like. And we all know that exercise is so beneficial um, and has so many health outcome, outcomes that are positive. But kind of after an injury, someone might have to reconstruct the way yeah. they, they view exercise. Right. Or how they do it. Or yeah. So um, I know that uh, physical therapists tend to focus on exercise a lot. And, and mm -hmm. I think as OTs, it's just as important because it's an occupation. Yeah. And, it, and if it's something that somebody did before their injury, um, it's obviously a really important occupation to them in their lives. So how do we now figure out what that looks like now with a new disability or new injury or new, and you're right, it's probably, or maybe not, but most likely it's going to look different, but yeah. that doesn't mean that it's not still possible. Yeah. Um, and so, but, but helping people to get to, to that place sometimes is difficult and people get to different places, different times that, you know, um, people with spinal cord injury, a lot of times after their injury, there's a lot of mental health things going on with depression and some people might yeah. be ready faster than others. And so it's yeah. sort of having this continuum of where we're making sure that we're giving people or we're planting seeds maybe so that when people have other things figured out, maybe then they're ready. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, not everybody's going to be ready at the same time. So, yeah. And the other thing we're learning is that motivation is a big factor, right? <laughs> if you're not motivated <laughs> to do it, it's probably not going to happen. And that's whether you have a disability or not. Yeah. Um, so you know, people are probably going to be motivated to do things that they like. So trying to figure out, I think that's a perfect role for an occupational therapist is trying to figure out what might now work for that person and what that person likes and what might motivate them. Because um, if you can get them motivated, you'll probably get them to do it. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. That kind of answered my next question. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask how um, practitioners could address those uh, personal and social factors. Um, and it sounds like planting the seed early, as well as uh, finding out what motivates a client um, can really help in that. And really, I love how you touched on planting the seed early. This is something that OTs in a variety of settings can help to do. Yeah, have the conversation. Yeah. yeah. But once somebody has a disability or they're going through some sort of health condition, there's a lot of, well, I can't do this anymore. I can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's not the truth. <laughs> There's so yeah. many options out there, but it, it, you know, it's a journey sometimes to figure out, you know, well, what is it now going to look like? And it's probably going to look like different, but a lot of people just don't even know that there's possibilities out there. So yeah. having OTs play that role of, Hey, there's resources, there's supports, there's technology, there's all kinds of opportunities now. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's a lot of clear, defined things that, that practitioners can do to, to help their clients better. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. Let's see. I think we might be ready to wrap up. Real quick, i like to, to ask if you'd like to share um, where our listeners can find some of your research or any other resources you'd like to recommend to them. Yeah. Um, so probably 
journal articles would probably be the best spot. Mm -hmm. um, we're working on a lab uh, website to share all of our interventions. It's not up yet, so I don't have an address yeah. to share, but maybe look in the future. Um, it, and it will be linked to the Washington University Occupational Therapy page of where you can find a summary of my work as well. So, yeah. so that might be some good places to start. Awesome. And the, you know, when we were talking about um, assistive technology and yeah. wheelchairs, um, if people are really interested in that, the other thing that they should probably check out is an organization called Resna, which is Rehabilitation Engineering and Assistive Technology Society of North America. It's a mouthful. <laughs> that was a yeah. mouthful, yeah. But it brings together cross disciplines, OTs, PTs, um, rehab engineering, researchers, people interested in technology um, and promoting movement of making technology better, but also figuring out better ways of how people use technology. And so if people are interested in this, that's a really nice place to look to. Very cool, thank you so much. Yep. Um, and one question I like to ask, I like to ask guests what their golden nugget is. So if you could tell practitioners across the board, maybe one thing, yeah. what would it be? Yeah, I would say just keep people moving. Yep. <laughs> I think, again, there's sort of a stigma, now I have a disability, I can't do anything. and and it, it seems like there's this trend where people with disabilities um, after rehab end up in their homes and they're trying to figure out so many things, but they're trying to make their home accessible and they're, um, they're, they're now trying to figure out what life looks like with a disability. And, and I, I think we forget that if, if we don't keep them moving and keep them out and give the, giving them options that um, a lot of people just end up in their home not doing anything. Um, and it leads to a lot of health issues, uh, mental health, physical health. Um, so I think there's something, um, even if people can't move everything is move what you got. And so yeah. trying to, um, support and motivate people just to stay moving. Awesome. Yeah. I, I love that piece of advice. Yeah. yeah. Well, Carrie, thank you again so much for your time and for your interview. I think it was a great one. Yeah. Thanks, man. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Yeah, of course. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of how to OT. If you're interested in some of the articles we referenced during the interview, please check the episode description. In the episode description, you'll also find a link to our post-listener survey. Please take just two to three minutes and fill out that survey and let us know what you think. We want to hear from you. Tune in in two weeks for a brand new episode. I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. I'm on vacation every single day, every, every single day. Hey, I'm on vacation every single day, cause I love my occupation.